So as Dan said on uh, retreat, we're going to meditate actually on the incarnation from uh, several different points of view. And tonight I want to talk a little bit uh, briefly about the, the verse in 1 Corinthians 1, 1 To those who are called, both Jews and Cre- Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So the power and wisdom of God in Christ is the power and wisdom of the divine plan of salvation that we see only when we see the full plan. And we celebrate the nativity or the birth of Christ as the beginning of the Feast of the Incarnation that goes on to the celebration of Christ's manifestation in the coming of the Magi and in the baptism of the Lord. It's the beginning of the Feast of the Incarnation. But in fact, we don't understand the incarnation of Christ himself, looking at his historical life until after the cross and the resurrection and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, apart from the cross and resurrection and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, All we see is a human birth. And a human birth is not an incarnation. An incarnation is becoming flesh, a becoming flesh. Although the word incarnation and incarnational get used all over the Christian world, what happens in a human birth is not an incarnation. It's just a human birth. Human beings just are flesh. That's what we are. So they don't become flesh. On the day J.M. Hoyt was born, <coughs> nobody said, oh, his, his, his mother didn't, didn't uh, call her mother or something, his grandmother, and say, well, thanks be to God. Today, J.M. Hoyt became flesh. <laughs> He just is flesh. He was just born. And we don't have any existence that's not already a fleshy existence. We don't have a body. We are a body. But in the incarnation, what happens is something entirely unique. A being that already exists as the eternal word of God, the everlasting son of God, the Son of the Father from before all ages takes on something new. Without ceasing to be God, he becomes one of us so that he can live as one of us. As the Christmas sermon that we're all familiar with says, he became what he was not without ceasing to be what he was. So, This is an incarnation. This is the coming of someone as flesh, as one of us. And it's the only incarnation in the full sense of the word. Because the word didn't turn into something else. He took on something else while remaining the son of God. And all the other pagan claims to a God walking on the earth, are just a cover 
for some kind of demon worship. But this is the God of all creation who becomes one of us, truly one of us, body and soul, with a human intelligence and human desires, with even a human background, a human family, and a human history behind him in the people of Israel. And because of that, when the Son of God comes in the flesh, it's not simply a revelation. It's not simply an unveiling of God. At the same time, it's a veiling, like the hymn that we just sang, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. It's kind of paradoxical. See the Godhead veiled in flesh. Normally when we want to see something, we don't put a veil over it. But this is availing for the sake of the unveiling. First John says, or John chapter 1 says, No one has ever seen God. The only Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has made Him known. By becoming something that we can see and that we can experience and that we can relate to. So in the incarnation, we see a limited, hungering, thirsting, suffering, an even mortal human being. And that full humanity of Christ in some way covers his Godhead, <coughs> covers his divinity, even for his closest followers. You know that song that you hear over and over again these days? Mary, did you know? Oh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm tired of it too. <laughs> But it's true. When she looked down, what she saw was a baby. And in fact, before too long, a baby that needed to be fed and cared for. And God have mercy on me, I assume changed. <laughs> there's, a, there's a Godhead veiled in our flesh, and even our flesh at its weakest and at our most vulnerable. And so throughout his, the course of his earthly ministry, even those who followed him most closely and obeyed him and revered him didn't know who they were dealing with. They didn't yet understand what John will later say we looked upon and we touched with our hands which was the word of life itself. There's kind of a weak, limited parallel with what you see of Aragorn in The Lord of the Rings, Strider, who just looks like this vagabond and is in fact, from the beginning, the king. The king who hasn't yet entered into the glory of his kingship, but the king. At times we see a kind of glimpse of his glory in the feeding of the multitude, or in the calming of the storm, or in the transfiguration. But in the course of his earthly ministry, all of those were misinterpreted or misunderstood. It requires a resurrection to reveal the immortal power of God, the indestructible life that was already dwelling in this child, in this human being. 
and then to allow us to worship him as he really is. When Paul speaks about Christ as the power of God and the wisdom of God, he's, he's just said, look, this is folly to the Greeks and a scandal to the Jews because the Son of God entered into our flesh and was crucified. But he says, for those of us who know him, this is the power of God and the wisdom of God because the very veiling and the very weakness displays the power and the wisdom of God. On the one level, it's the wisdom of God made manifest because it was the way to the great despoiling of the devil. The one who comes to bind up the strong man so that he can plunder his house, namely us, and deliver us from him. 1 Corinthians 2.7, just a chapter after what Paul has said about Christ as the power and wisdom of God, says, we impart a secret and a hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glorification. None of the rulers of this age understood this. If they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They didn't know who they were dealing with. And the rulers of this age probably means not only the Romans and the Sanhedrin, but even more, the evil spirits who were working through them. Many of the early church fathers, both in the East and the West, perceive this as God acting craftily to overcome the injustice of the devil who had seduced us, who had lured us, who had tricked us. But God doesn't do this just by trickery, but by a justice that's so just that the rulers of the world can't comprehend it because he became one of us so that he could give to God what we owed him which is our whole life. He ensnares the devil, but he doesn't ensnare the devil by a little crafty dealing off the bottom of the deck. He ensnares the devil by being straightforwardly obedient to the point of death and loving those who are his own in the world to the end, fulfilling the two great commandments. He comes as the righteous one, as the new Adam, so that he could offer God what we owed to him and hadn't paid. It's also the wisdom of God in that it reveals the plan of God to unite his creation to himself at one point, namely the point of the spiritual animal, which is the human being, to unite creation to himself in the body of one human being so closely that scripture talks about it as one flesh, like a marriage, only deeper. Because when you die, or at least one of you dies, you're not married anymore. But when you're joined to Christ, you're joined to him forever. Who could ever have guessed that this figure of the Lord as Israel's husband would become so literally true, more profoundly than in a human marriage. So Paul says in Ephesians 1, he has made known to us in all wisdom and insight 
the mystery of his will, according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ, to unite as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. But he unites them by becoming one of us, by entering into his creation. This veiling is a real revelation because it shows the depths of God's mercy and his goodness and what you could even call God's humility. How could God humble himself? He can only humble himself by becoming what he wasn't, by becoming someone who's in a position to be humble, by becoming one of us. And this is not a picture, it's not a figure, it's not an analogy, it's God himself. He who has seen me, Philip, has seen the Father. But you only see him in this way. And this fulfills what the Lord revealed to Moses on Sinai. The Lord, the Lord, a God of steadfast love and mercy, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is the vindication of the goodness of God that we see foreshadowed in the book of Job. That there's, there, there is a man. There is a man who will truly fear God. There's only one. But there's a man who will truly fear God so that he can bring other men with him into the fear of the Lord. And this is the fulfillment of everything that was spoken by the prophets. It's the power of God because only God could do this. Only God can become what he was not and remain what he is so that we can become what we had lost, the glory of God, so we could take back on the splendor that God intended for, for us from the time of creation. And this is really the feast of the incarnation. This is when we begin to meditate on and marvel at and wonder at, as Dan said, what God has done for us in Christ. Something so unfathomable that the greatest wisdom of man couldn't have imagined it. Something so unthinkable that the angels literally didn't think of it. And when they saw it, they said, holy smokes, or words to that effect. It was beyond the, not just the comprehension, but even the, the inkling or the imagination of man. Christ, the power and the wisdom of God, because Christ is God himself come among us. Amen. Amen. Amen.